Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. Rob Scrag, author of the Porter and Style series, is my co-host on today's show. His latest book, the fourth in that series, End of the Line, has just been released in Kindle and Hardback. And if you give our Northern Crime Syndicate Facebook page a like, you'll see more kind of details about Rob and what he's up to on there. Uh, I'm really excited to announce that Will Dean is today's guest on the show. Uh, Will grew up in the East Midlands and lived in nine different villages before the age of 18. He studied law for a while and worked many varied jobs in London before settling in rural Sweden. He built a wooden house in a boggy forest clearing, and it's from this base that he reads and writes. So Dark Pines was the first in the Tuva Moodyson series, a great series, by the way, and one which everybody should check out, was published a huge critical acclaim in 2018, and it was shortlisted for Not the Booker Prize, selected for Zoe Ball's TV Book Club, and named as a Daily Telegraph Book of the Year. And his latest novel, The Last Thing to Burn, is his first standalone. Uh, and for those who really follow Will, you will know that his agent is Kate Burke of Blake Friedman. And Kate was actually on the show a number of weeks ago. So we'll put her episode in the show notes as well for people to listen to. But Will Dean, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Thank you very much, Adam. Rob, it is good to be here. It's good to be talking to some human beings. <laughs> Indeed, see, yeah. see some faces yeah, instead of just the four walls of your house. Yeah. So I'd love to start. So let's start at the end, really, and then we'll kind of work back. Um, so the last thing to burn, which I haven't yet read, but I'm looking forward to getting my hands on. So if you can tell us a little bit about that um, and where people can kind of get it and when it when it when it was released. Absolutely. So, yeah, the last thing to burn is my first standalone book. Um, but it's not it's not like I wrote it last year. I wrote it in 2017. I had the idea in 2016, wrote it in 2017. And I've been working on it whenever I've had a spare five minutes, you know, between the two of the books coming up. And it's been described as Misery by Stephen King meets Room by Emma Donoghue. <laughs> so it's one of these really claustrophobic, tense stories. And this, this, this book really only has two main characters. Uh, and one of those characters is keeping the other captive on a desolate Fenland farm in the UK. Okay. Uh, and so why, so, because obviously when you get into a series, there's that compulsion to kind of keep going with it. Was this kind of almost an outlet away from the two of Moody's and stuff or a bit of a passion yeah, project all along? It's basically, the problem is I've got very little self-control or control over my own process whatsoever. So when I have an idea and it's, you know what it's like, you both know what it's like. It's like when you have, you have a lot of ideas, but then occasionally you have an idea, you just got to go with it. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have time to write it, you've got to kind of think it through, visualize it a bit, write down an outline at least so you can work on it later on. And that's what happened with this. Like I had literally no time to work on this when it came to me, but I knew I didn't want to let it go. So I kind of went with it. And I don't really care if I write a first draft and it gets published 10 years later. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me. It's more that if I have an idea, I want it to be, I want to tell myself the story. Right? And that's kind of what a first draft is. So 
the two the Moody Stone series I love, I will write them and write them and write them. I'm just working on number five right now, having ideas for number six, love them. But they're very different to the standalones and they both kind of play off each other. You know, the two the Moody Stone series is, is a lot more, there's a lot more light and shade. There's a lot more humor. And you kind of know that Tuba's going to survive at the end of the book because there's going to be another Tuba book. Um, and I like the fact that there's a lot of warmth and friendship in those books. They're set in a kind of Twin Peaks, weird little town in central Sweden. Mm. But then with the standalones, I'm able to go wild. You know, I'm able to flex my writer muscles, learn some stuff, challenge myself. And with those books, I don't know, and the reader doesn't know, if the main character is going to survive the story. There's not going to be a sequel. And I like that. It's exciting for me. So I love both. I love the familiarity and the kind of comfort, even though they're dark, of the two of the Moody Sun novels. And then with the standalones, I love the fact that I have no idea what's going on. I just go with it. So I, It sounds I, the way you've described it. It sounds quite kind of liberating. Like you say, it's kind of almost gloves are off. There's no guarantees anyone gets out alive type of thing. It is. It's totally liberating. And like this book, Last Thing to Burn, is short. I didn't know it was going to be short. It ended up as being like almost half the length of a tuba book. And then the next book might be double the length of a tuba book. I just don't know. And I'm not that, like, I feel like because I live in Sweden in a forest, in a cabin, I'm quite distant from the rest of the world and especially from the publishing world. And I quite like that distance because it means that I'm not so influenced by what's going on in publishing, what all these trends are. I don't really care. I've just got to focus on my own stories and kind of read and permit away and whatever comes out the other end comes out the other end and that might not be published for years and that's fine but um i love both i love the tuba books and i love the standalones and i like the fact that one leads to the other so i work on a tuba book and i really get a buzz out of that revisiting those characters and those locations those towns those forests in sweden extreme weather but then when i'm done i don't want to write another tuba book straight away i want to write a standalone and do something completely different mm. so just what works for me at the moment, I guess. So out of interest then, you mentioned in terms of timeline, so you'd, you'd wrote Last Thing to Burn, did you say 2016? Had the idea 2016, yeah. midnight, one night. Whole book came to me in six hours between midnight and 6 a.m. And then I went away and kind of researched stuff and then I wrote the first draft in three weeks in 2017. And at that point, had you already finished Dark Pines as a draft? So I'm just curious as to where you have the kind of partition in your mind what you're working on do you find it easy to switch between the two or do you have to keep them completely separate i try and keep them a little bit separate but like as you guys know you can't keep them completely separate you always work on the edits of something while you're writing the first draft of another thing while you're publicizing another thing so dark pines wasn't yet published but it was it had been sold to my publisher uh red snow had already written the first draft but that was almost ready and then I had this idea because I always write a long way ahead. I always write two years ahead or something like that. Okay. I think that that's quite unusual. Um, I like to give myself loads of time so I can lock a book away in a drawer for a long time before I have to read it for the first time. Mm. So, yeah, I like I don't mind juggling, but I kind of carve out time. So I just have a whiteboard in my office and I'm like January is for this book and February through March is for this book. And that's how I kind of figure it out. So... I really want to dive into the Tuva Moodison stuff because um, it's a series that I absolutely love. But you, you mentioned about being in Sweden um, and it, and it's on the face of it, it seems like quite a a really interesting kind of backstory there, almost like a shunning of kind of the regular life of London and the hustle and bustle for a different way of living. 
Um, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm right in saying that you you kind of built the cottage hut, whatever you're living in yourself, um, and that you'd save money from kind of fixing vintage watches on the side. So kind of looking at that with the nine different villages and the studying of law, I mean, what was the Will Dean story there and the thinking behind ending up where you are kind of at? <laughs> you can see that I'm not very good at planning things out long term. <laughs> so basically, I, yeah, I'm from the East Midlands. I'm the only kid in my family who was kind of bookish. They saw me as the black sheep because they're all they were very practical and good at that stuff. And they, they left school when they were, you know, 15, 16. And I was the only one who went on to A-levels and to university. And I was the only one reading books. There was no books in my house. The only book in the house was the Argos catalogue, you know, which is also the only book really in Lasting to Burn. And then I went into law, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Like I'd studied it. I thought it was interesting, but I didn't want to then work in an office the rest of my life because... That kind of freaked me out, that idea, because I'm quite an outdoors person. So I I ended up going from that to selling discount haircut coupons on the streets of London for two years, seven days a week. I was out there trying to sell, hand sell these coupons, these rubbish coupons. Well, they weren't rubbish, but, you know, these coupons to people, to strangers. And then I did loads of other jobs, construction, all sorts of things. And then uh, I, did, I had a proper job for a little while. And then even with that proper job, you know what London is like, I was like, we had a one-bedroom flat that was tiny and kind of damp, and it was just difficult to make ends meet in London. It really is. And my wife is Swedish. I'm from the countryside. I just wanted to get back to simple life with a bit of fresh air, able to go for a walk, able to have a bit of a garden or a yard or something. So we decided, let's try Sweden. And we found this piece of land on the internet. On Christmas Day, I found it on the internet. And it was like a boggy clearing in a forest. And the, the listing was like, there's nothing here, right? So the listing, they couldn't say there was a good access road because there wasn't a good access road. So the <laughs> listing was like great blueberries, mushrooms, dragonflies, all this nonsense. My wife was kind of like interested in that. So we flew over on Ryanair when they had five, 10 pound tickets. This was back in 2009. And uh, we liked, I fell in love with the place, you know, the, the taxi driver sorry, not the taxi driver, the real estate agent couldn't believe that somebody was actually interested in this place. I think it was listed for years without selling. No Swedes wanted to live here. And he took my wife and I up here and had to kind of park the car a few miles away. We went to hike through the snow to get here. And I was like, I just fell in love with the place. And yeah, we built, uh, we've got a couple of different wooden huts, kind of structures. And that's where we live. And we work from home and it's a, we have our own well for our own water and our own wood for cooking and heating and it's a quiet simple kind of life you know I like the balance of being here and having no neighbors no noise no nothing no shops no restaurants no bars and then going to the UK or to New York or whatever every now and again to do events and festivals and meet you guys and have a beer and meet readers I love that that contrast yeah curious with so with that contrast obviously the the two books are set um, in, in quite a small rural location. You've got the standalone, which you've just talked about there, which is set way out in the middle of nowhere. Is that is that a conscious choice because you, that's how you live currently or is that just a complete coincidence? I don't know. I, it's probably somewhere in between the two. Like, it's not a coincidence, I don't think. I think I am fascinated by the idea of being very alone and being very away from civilization and help. I do kind of recognise that like out here, you know, when it's minus 25, minus 28, there's nobody close by. If you went out for a walk and you didn't have your phone and you broke your ankle, you you, you wouldn't make it. And I, I find that fascinating, that just 
danger from distance, you know, danger from lack of potential help. Um, but the next book that's coming out, the next standalone is set in New York. So again, maybe that's me trying to challenge myself again and write something completely different, a different landscape. I don't know. It's not, I don't feel like I've got a very much of a conscious kind of control over this thing. It's just, I have an idea if I feel in my gut that it's going to be an interesting thing to write, then I just go with it and hope for the best. So looking at the, the two of Amundsen series then, um, how did the idea for that come about? And obviously Tuva is a very interesting character. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about her. Um, and I kind of say, uh, I mean, I could be wrong. It's just my interpretation. But very much kind of, it's like she fits in in the area she's living in, but is also a very different kind of person. And so she has these sides where it's kind of, it's it's there's friction there all the time. Yet she's also very good at living in that place. And she's almost like a digital person in like an analog world, trying to kind of get by and, and deal with all the idiosyncrasies of these other characters, which are all fantastic, by the way. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about her and the original idea for that series. Thank you. I like that. that. I like that idea of her being kind of fitting in and not fitting in. She's definitely kind of an outsider. So, mm. yeah, I'll, I'll talk about Tuva a little bit. So Tuva Moodison is a young deaf reporter. She's the only full-time reporter at the newspaper in this tiny little town. And the town is like something from, like I said, from Twin Peaks or like a Stephen King invention from Maine. It's that kind of thing where there's one hotel, there's one main employer, big licorice factory. There's one bar, there's a McDonald's. And that, honestly, is how the small towns are around here. You know, I, I don't live very close to any of them, but I live an hour away from a few, and they're like that. You walk in on a Friday night, and there's not anybody out on the street. And obviously, that's quite normal in 2021 for you guys to see uh, during lockdown. But like, it's, that's how it always is here. There is this tumbleweed, there's nothing. And you kind of go into a, a shop at lunchtime, and it's closed. There's nobody there. It's just a little sign on the counter saying, you know, we're back in two hours. Kind of, It's just weird. It's very odd. It's very um, exotic for me to write that because I'm not used to that in the UK. Mm. And the moose hunt, when the whole town kind of shuts down and all the employers give their staff a couple of days off and people, uh, teenagers come out of school to participate in the hunt, it's just weird. It's very, very cool and different. And Tuba, like you say, she's an outsider and an insider. She's Swedish. And she's a really good reporter, very tenacious reporter, but she's a city person. She, she's from Stockholm. She's worked in London. Like her dream is to work in a big city, some big paper where she can learn something. And because of her mum and where her mum was, she's in this little tiny two-horse town in central Sweden, not close to anything. She can't get really good food. She can't, you know, there's nothing there for her really, but she is out there looking for stories, interviewing people. And what she's fascinated by is doing justice to the victims of the crimes and understanding the ripples in the community from the crime. So she's not that interested in, in the crime itself. She's definitely not like a police person protagonist. She's more interested in the impact on the families and, and on the community itself. And yeah, she is a, she's an interesting person to write. She really is. You know, she's, she's bisexual. She's young. She's very ambitious. She has a really complicated relationship with her family members or her mum. Uh, she has a very close friendship to Tammy, who's her best friend, who runs kind of a, a takeaway food van selling Thai food. They have a really nice friendship. That's kind of her family now. And I don't know. 
it's a small town setting that I love diving back into. I feel like a kid playing with some big jigsaw puzzle or one of those roadmap rugs. Yeah. And I just go back in there and in my mind's eye, when I go to sleep at night, I often kind of walk around the town and see, you know, which businesses are doing well and who's going into Ronnie's bar and this kind of thing. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's something I enjoy. Mm. See, as a fan, I'm probably I'm going to sound a bit like a fan here, but the things things I really love about the books is, I love that it's almost like a whatever the crime is that's kind of going on. All the people that have appeared in all of the books have some level of suspicion or dodginess about their character or life, and it's almost like. Although you kind of think, well, they'll have nothing to do with this major crime here. There's always something going on. Or they've interacted with her in a weird way, like the taxi driver, you know, or you've got the sisters in the woods. And and it's just that, like, these reoccurring characters, and it's almost like, what are they up to all the time? And so they have their lives moving on around. And I think what I, what I also love is just that she, from an outside perspective in the Western world, in, like, regular society, Tuva is, is the most normal one. Yet she's viewed as this weird outsider by people who are so idiosyncratic around her. And I just absolutely love that. It's like they have no understanding that they're the weird ones sort of thing. It's, it's her that's like seeking to fit in. And I just love that. But, you know? <laughs> that's very true. And, I, and part of that, I think, comes from the fact that I did live, I did move around a lot as a kid. You know, we moved to one place and then we couldn't afford it anymore. Moved to another place, moved to another place. Somebody got a new job. We moved to another place. We're never very in one place for very long. Mm. And so I was always kind of moving in and then just being a very curious, curious kind of loner kid, just walking around, kind of checking people out and working out where I was going to be living now and who these neighbours were going to be in. I just find it fascinating in a small town or a small village, you get to know the characters pretty quickly and they are often quite interesting and eccentric in their own way. And that's, and, and they're always there, you know, like the Tuba books, when I write Tuba number 17, some of those characters are still going to be working in those shops or working in the factory or driving the taxi. I just, I find that interesting. And, and do you... Is that, sorry, you I was say, is, that a bit of a, is that a bit of a slip? Have you got 17 planned? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, no, I've got, I've got, uh, so I've written the first draft of number five. My wife just read that. She's my first reader. So I keep working on that. Four comes out later this year. And no, I can't see any further ahead than that. I can, I'm starting to get ideas for number six. But that's very, very sketchy, vague ideas, and then uh, no idea what happens after that. I see kind of a book and a half ahead. So, like ideas aside, do you see kind of a longer-term character arc for Tuba, or is it just everything comes to you kind of more piecemeal, a book and a half ahead? Very much the latter, yeah. Very piecemeal. Like I, I, I know that I'm really interested to know what Tuba is going to be like in her early thirties, late thirties, forties. I just hope, I hope the books go that far but I don't know what she's going to be like then and I don't know what's going to you know what her family life and relationships are going to look like I haven't got a clue uh yeah one and a half books ahead is about all I can do and so obviously two of our as you mentioned is death um and and what's great about it is so that her deafness makes her a really at times very useful kind so which is in which is in danger and something goes wrong with her hearing aids or she's not put them in and 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 it's it's forever there in the story and adds to kind of the, the tension at times as, as a kind of a, a technique to use and i really like that but it, and then you mentioned how she's bisexual as well and i know one of, one of the books is touching on kind of a bit of social unrest and a bit of racism and things like that and uh, and i wonder i assume it to some degree is fairly conscious that you are aiming for that um are you kind of 
commenting on society in the wider society because I, I visited Sweden in the last uh, say I, I think that last year was recently but nothing's happened for years it's almost been two years ago I went to Stockholm um, and we did like one of the tours and they were kind of saying that historically Sweden's been a very kind of socialist minded country an open country like that but that there's been a bit of a resurgence of the of the right wing within the country and that there's a bit of tension amongst races and stuff is that something that you saw and used in the book deliberately or was it just something you stumbled across it's not so much that, it's more that in any small town, any small community, anywhere in the world, you get that. Mm. You know, big melting pot metropolitan cities, you still get that, but less so, or it's less overt. But small towns, it's just able to kind of fester and and, and exist. And I know that from living in lots of them. You know, if, I, if you go to Stockholm, everything's extremely modern and dynamic and international and cosmopolitan and tolerant. And then you go further out, further out, further out. And in Sweden, you can go a long way. You know, it's like three times the size of England or whatever. It's enormous and it's quite empty. You get to really, really cut off places and the attitudes are just very different towards outsiders. And it's not necessarily racism. It could just be uh, fear or just not understanding or just, just not having lived outside of your own small community. And I do find that interesting to explore, that idea of conflict uh within the landscape and conflict within your your kind of local group of people because it's always there they're always it doesn't matter how tolerant and nice everything seems under the surface there's something bubbling under and that's kind of interesting to tap into yeah and it's like um when you see i think as a book three of the two of a series where there's a potential abduction and the town the village town sort of reaction to a different abduction because that person is kind of you know, of Swedish descent, uh, two of us kind of so frustrated by it. And to them, it just doesn't seem to cross their mind that they're reacting differently. But we see it as a reader and two of us sees it as an outsider looking in that this particular person's getting different treatment because of that. So it, it is, I thought it was a really interesting touch within that particular book. Uh, I, want, I did want to touch on that. That was in Black River, like you say, two of the three. And yeah, first of all, two of us best friend goes missing, Tammy, who is... Uh, Swedish but she's her parents are Thai mm. and there is like a little bit of interest or um, kind of press interest and so on and community interest and then one of the local women go missing kind of blonde haired blue eyed uh, Swedish woman and the locals just go into overdrive and there's this huge effort to find her and even you know the posters of Tammy that have been put up get ripped down and replaced by this other woman even though they're both missing and two of are just furious about this, incensed by this. And it's, it's a phenomenon that happens, unfortunately. You know, different missing persons get different amounts of press coverage. And it's I just find it quite shocking and sad. So, yeah, it went in there. And so the all of these sort of wacky, wonderful, strange characters and, and you know, the things that they do, is that just something you go, it comes to you one, you go, that, that would be interesting, or are you kind of consciously writing down ideas of how kind of, for want of a better term, how weird you can kind of make people? <laughs> or are they based in reality? <laughs> I mean, some of them are a little bit based in reality, but most of them is just me being childish. Honestly, yeah. it's me being a kid again. Like, you would think that with crime fiction thrillers, you should keep it dark and you should keep it um, fairly serious in tone. But sometimes my mind just goes off on a tangent and I come up with some weird character who's just slightly humorous or, or creepy or odd and 
in a very different way. And I just love writing that. It just gives me a surge of kind of pleasure. You know, I get I get a high, I get a buzz from writing stuff that entertains me. Mm. So the first draft is for me. So if I do find a character who I find interesting or fun or, or odd, I'm gonna I'm gonna write them. And Often they're the reader's favorite characters, although the, I get letters and emails saying, you know, bring that character back, will you, in the next book? Because they, like the wood, the woodcarving sisters, these two sisters who live deep in the forest and make uh, troll figures that they sell, and they carve them out of local pine, and they're, they adorn them with human fingernail cuttings and human hair and stuff. And I love writing those two, and the readers like it. So I just, I don't know, it's fun. Yeah, I think you, especially with the first draft, when you're telling yourself the story, you've got to enjoy it and get a buzz out of it. Mm. What's well, your cliche, isn't it? Write the book that you want to read. I think it's really true. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cliche that, that is true and that works. I need to, I mean, there are days, as you guys know, when you write a first draft where it's not fun, it's just hard and you don't know where things are going and it's terrifying. But most of a first draft experience for me is it's very fast and it's very furious and it's very fun and kind of scary because I don't know where it's going, but it's, I get a lot of joy from it. You know, the, the month where I write a first draft, if I write one book a year, that month is my favorite month of the whole year. And if I never published a book again, I would still write a first draft once a year just because I get a childish kind of glee out of it. And so when do you know the, because I'm an add-on plot myself, um, the second book that I wrote, I, I got three quarters of the way through and then decided two birds of one stone to kind of write a synopsis. One, because you'd have to in the end anyway. And two, just to see what would make sense as an ending. And then I thought, actually, that, that worked quite well. I got the last quarter of the book done with an idea in mind. But with the first one, it was like I didn't give it literally till the last page or whatever. I wasn't really thinking about how it would end up. So are, are you that way inclined as well, literally until you stumble across it? Or does there come a point where you go, right, I'll, I'll have to plan something now? Um, I have I have this unusual process where I just visualize a lot. I, I focus on the imagery and the mood of the novel. So I'll have an idea, which is often a, a visual. So the last thing to burn, I saw an aerial view of Fenland, this tiny little cottage, two up, two down cottage, in a vast farm, kind of featureless farm. And I saw there was a woman there. And she was walking around the farmhouse sometimes and in and out of the farmhouse, but she never went very far away. And I understood that she couldn't leave. She wanted to leave and she couldn't leave. And I needed to understand her story. And then that night between midnight and 6am, I had the idea at midnight, that image. And between that time and 6am, I had the entire story mapped out in my head visually, the big scenes of what was going to happen. But I didn't, I don't write notes or like post-it notes or big spreadsheets or anything like that because I want it to stay malleable and, and dynamic. But I, I keep visualizing, I keep daydreaming and thinking about it. And then months later, the story's there in my head pretty much and I sit down and write it. So that's how I do it. I kind of know roughly what the ending is, but because I haven't written anything down, I give myself all that wiggle room when I'm writing the first draft to change things. Yeah. Curious, you mentioned earlier on about uh, a second standalone. Is there anything you could share about that yet or is it all still under wraps? I can't say a word, Rob. I mean, I think I've said, I've said that it's set in New York, which is true. Okay, I can say a few things. It's about... It explores kind of themes of sibling relationships and identity and revenge. I can say that much. It's a it's a wild book. Um, it's still very early days. I just delivered it before Christmas to my editor, and uh, yeah, it, again, I got a real buzz when I wrote the first draft. But that's about all I can say. 
And so with the last thing to burn there, because I, I was reading a, a little bit about it and this idea that this person has four items that are kind of the only items she has left for herself in the world. And then obviously the, the captor coming home and I guess destroying one of those items for, for whatever reason, like taking something away. And I just saw God, so powerful thinking, you know, if you had four things in the world that meant more to you than anything and they were yours and somebody was going to take one away, like having to make that choice. It was kind of the, the photo of her parents is what she hands over. And I just think there's something, you know, it's just fantastic, you know, to, that I was visually kind of thinking of that and just like the, the trauma that that would bring for a person, you know? Yeah, it's horrific. It's it's a, it's absolutely nightmarish. I mean, she kept, she comes to that farm. She's got seventeen possessions, and over the years, like you say, when she does something that displeases this man, this character is called Len, the farmer. He will very calmly ask her to choose one of her remaining possessions, and then that night later on, he will burn it on the Rayburn stove, the log burning stove where they cook, where she cooks the meals just very quietly menacing that he's very composed and calm about it but he's eroding her identity you know one item at a time and he does everything to control her he films her he's got different cameras set up in different rooms he dictates what they eat on which day of the week and basically how she cooks everything has to be how his late mother cooked everything he's very particular about his food he she's injured and he drugs her with kind of horse tranquilizers and so she's drugged all the time and he controls the amount of painkillers he's prepared to give her on any particular day and the terrifying thing about the landscape is that every view you know every mile that she can see out of her cottage window is his land he controls it he sculpts it he sows those crops and harvests them and she can never get away because the distances are so big and he controls all the keys keys to his Land Rover, the keys to his quad bike. So she is completely controlled and stuck in this place. It's just, it's a horrific idea. <laughs> and are, are we, do we have any sympathy for this bloke? Because, you know, some bad characters, there's, there's some sliver of hope there. I mean, is, is it just that we, it touches upon his backstory and within that you kind of, there might be a, a modicum of sympathy, but actually the way he is as, an, as a man just kind of invoke that. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't have any sympathy for him. I, I, I loathe him, but I think there is some there are some hints of explanations in the book. And later on in the book, some things happen to give the main character hope. And you see him change slightly. So, I mean, you have you, I can't say too much. I don't want to give away too much. But yeah, he he does he does develop a little bit. But he is a he's an extremely uh bad man you know he's a he's probably the most awful antagonist i will ever write i would think and how was the um the launch and whatnot being uh obviously with everything that's sort of going on so so i guess your day-to-day life in some ways probably seems the same you've acclimatized to a, a sort of a lockdown scenario before it's even begun um but kind of because i know some people have had books put back and obviously we've been doing online events for different people and things so how's that been for you it's been right. I had Black River came out last March and that was worse in a way because that was uh, like everybody was terrified and panicking and everything. My, I had a UK tour up and down the country and that was all cancelled and I couldn't fly over and it was all like very dramatic and all the online events hadn't happened then. So that was tough. 
But like this was okay because everybody's used to it. The bookshops are now ready for it. You know, I just do like a lot of Zoom things a day and a lot of um, interviews and radio and stuff. And that's all brilliant. And I don't mind doing it. It's fun. It's It kind of keeps my head in a good place when I'm out here in the woods for months and months and years on end. Um, so the launch has been okay. Thank goodness for great booksellers. You know, the booksellers have been doing a brilliant job recommending it, hand-selling it. And I'm just lucky I've got... You know, great publishers, great agent, and the the book has uh, kind of a life of its own now, which is quite a nice feeling. You know, it's it's out there in the world after yeah. after five years. You know, I had the idea in 2016. It's finally out there in the world. I'm very happy for it to be to be with readers now. Are you quite laid back about a launch with a book and kind of response and stuff like that, or is it something you worry about and follow day to day? I mean, I guess like anybody, you, you do think about it. Mainly I'm interested in will readers like it? Will readers connect to it? That's my main thing. You know, reviews and sales and news broadsheet reviews and all that stuff is nice. It's great. I'm very grateful for it, but it's it's not really why I do it. It's not that important to me. The most important thing is finding out that a reader got affected by it or got touched by it. That's what I like to do. But, I mean, as you guys know, you're, you're already working on an a book or two books ahead so my head right now is very much in the book the first draft i'm going to write next month which is the third standalone so like i'm very happy for the last thing to burn to be out there now and i love getting messages you know i'm getting messages all day long from readers which is fantastic dms and emails it's wonderful but my head very much is in the next uh, next novel now do you think that the the online stuff because obviously you were saying you quite enjoy, you, you it's like you dip in and out of, um, I keep wanting to say regular society, but what's regular about it? Kind of what we're used to, I guess, <laughs> over here. And you dip in and out, and it's great because you can kind of come experience and then you leave. Do you think there's a worry for you that, given the ease of the online stuff now, that in future you may revert to that rather than kind of coming over to the UK to do the tours in the usual way? Or are you still you know going to consciously make that effort come the time? Man, I'm gonna be flying over as soon as I can. I can't <laughs> wait. I I want because I miss it all. I miss you know actually seeing a reader and having a chat with a reader at the bar afterwards, or being on stage and at an event and and getting that feedback from from readers and meeting you guys and other writers. That is a big part of it, and I just I just love the kind of community aspect of it. I guess. And you know, forest life is great. I've chosen to live this life. It's wonderful, but it's especially good when you go and you come back. And you're like, oh, thank God I'm home. Whereas just being in the same place, wherever that is, it's just weird and kind of slightly unusual. So I can't wait. I mean, maybe I'll do some online events in future when I can't travel. But like, I'm ready to. I'm ready to fly again as soon as it's safe. I think for me, I think it'll probably be a bit of a hybrid yeah. when things kind of get back to some kind of normality. Because I think. So if, if I look at the kind of the festivals that we normally do and that, that kind of circuit, there's there's always people that you see and say, oh, I got it, I couldn't make that one, I couldn't afford it, I had family commitments, all that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't see a kind of like a two-tier model with some festivals offering like an online element. Absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's the way it will be. And that's good because some people, you know, if they're if, if someone's disabled or whatever or it's too expensive to travel, then it, it should be accessible to them as well. So I think it's great to have stuff online. And maybe some of the... The physical events, the re in real life events, should be filmed and then yeah. put online at a later date. That would be good as well. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. I mean, things things have evolved so fast in the last year. So before I round this up, Will, um, just because I'd be because in my mind I'm thinking the sooner Tuva has made into a um, 
a TV series on Netflix, something really gritty, you know, that no, that kind of Scandi Noir vibe that we get from a lot of TV shows, the better. Is that in the pipeline at all? Have, have any rights ever been sold? Or Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I hope this will happen. It's been sold to Lionsgate, actually. Wow. They have the rights, yeah. And they've, they've been fantastic. They've been a brilliant team. I love their vision for the whole thing. Um, a treatment has been written now by a British screenwriter who lives over in Canada. He's done a fantastic job. So it's kind of in the early stages of development. And we'll see. You never know if these things are going to happen until they're actually on the screen. But um, it's looking promising. So fingers crossed. Fantastic. Okay, well, we, we asked three questions of all guests before they go on, on this podcast. Um, so the first question for you, Will, is if the you know, your surroundings were to burn down, and I hope I hope they don't, by the way, um, what would be the one book that you would save? And it can't be your own. That's a horrible thought. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. one book, I don't know. Uh, you know what it would be? It would be something like the latest eight-page epic written by my six-year-old boy. That's what it would be. Something where he's drawn a dragon on the front or something and he's written everything the wrong way around and signed it with his name. That's what I would take. Actually, that's a really good answer, yeah. Because you can buy any kind of book from wherever, but something like that, which is a memory burn itself, is, uh, yeah. So if you were on death row, what would your final meal request be? This is very dark, guys, these questions. What would my last meal request be? Uh... I don't really mind as long as it's got my mum's gravy on it. Okay. Like I miss her. I can't cook gravy at all. And if she does anything, if it's a, you know, a roast lamb or a chicken pie, whatever it is, her gravy, I don't know how she does it, is amazing. And uh, I'm not really about that bothered about what goes with it. I just want a lot of her gravy very hot. Fair enough. And then the darkest question of all, peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? I'm allergic, man. You're trying to kill me, so it is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so that really was dark yeah. in the end. Will Dean, thank you very much for coming on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Thank you for having me. So segment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, Ian Peacock, and co-host, Robert Scrag. Rob, initial thoughts on that then? I really enjoyed that. Actually, it was it was great to chat with them. Um, I've met Will a couple of times at, at festivals, but it's just been kind of more in in passing a couple of minutes at a time. Um, but big fan of his two of a series, as as you mentioned, you are yourself. So it's just interesting to kind of to to hear the um, the backstory about the standalones as well. Yeah, and, the, the, yeah. and that, that's going to be a regular thing. And it's not just going to be a, a one off. Yeah, I think what I love. I mean, this is why I like Scandi and Nordic Noir and stuff like that, and it's a big influence on me. I think the setting is um you know and, and i talk about with my own books i try and make the set a, a big deal and, and part of the book and that kind of mm-hmm. grim bleak sort of background and stuff which you can get in the northeast in, in winter which is why i set my books in winter but there's just something about um the kind of settings that will creates you know in the outback of kind of sweden that you just can't get in in a in a regular well, crime we- novel you know and i absolutely love it it's so oppressive you know it's it's an interesting contradiction though isn't it because if you if you work it right you know, you've got a smaller cast, obviously over a, a big geographic area, but a smaller cast, you'd think it would be harder to keep secrets with a small number of people. But if you do it right, mm. you do get that real kind of sense of, you know, everyone's got literally a skeleton under the floorboards, in the closet, in the boot of the car, everywhere you look. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, not to ruin it for anybody, but some of those uh, secondary characters in, in the Tuva Moodison series books are just really odd. Um 
And yet you well, do it sympathize like, things like that that stick in your mind, though, isn't it? Because that's, that's what takes me back to a book or a series is the characters, not just the story. Because if I don't care about the characters, I'm not I'm not really going to stick around. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's like, even though you know there was some kind of um, dodginess to a particular character, say, in the first of, of his series, um, ultimately they might not have been the bad guy or whatever in the book. But then mm. in the second book, there might be in a different scenario. And it's like there's always a suspicion around them. Even yeah. though you kind of like think, well, it won't be them, you know? And so I just think he writes, you know, I can tell when he says he likes, it's like childish thing where he's having fun writing these characters. And you kind of tell when you read them because they're so like off the wall with the way they go on. <laughs> um, it's just fantastic. So I am really looking forward. The last thing to burn for listeners is is the latest book, which is available now um, in hardback. So I'm going to pick that up. I think you can get it online and uh, the signed copies go on at Waterstones. And I imagine likes of foreign books will also carry, carry um, copies as well. So how about you then, Rob? Because you've had your release this week um what's been going on with that what's kind of uh-huh, how, yes. how you felt about so, it yeah um it's it's been the first one i've released in lockdown because last year's book came out in january as well so i, I kind of beat the uh, the lockdown by what would it be about eight weeks last time round. um and i saw how tough that was for for you know some other friends who are in the same kind of industry and like so our, our very own ncs member trevor wood mm. um he was hit by lockdown number one so I think that being so long ago now, I kind of I knew what to expect and I've got my head around that that's how it's going to operate this time around. So it wasn't too much of a shock as such. But um, yeah, I do. I, re- I really miss the face-to-face events, yeah. to be honest. They've, they've been kind of the mainstay of my social life for quite a while, for the last uh, few years anyway, with having the, you know, the, the two young kids as well. That's the, the main time I get out to come and play. Mm. So yeah, it will, we'll get there eventually. But um yeah, so this is the fourth in the series. Um, probably going to be taking a bit of a break in the series for now. Um, had a couple of chats with me um, or emails swapped with my publisher around exploring a few other ideas, which I'm just polishing up before I share with them mm-hmm. um, and see where that takes us. But uh, I probably similar to Will in my head, Portland Styles, I've got at least one more, if not two, roughly mapped out in my head if there's an appetite for those further down the line yeah but i'm quite looking forward to something a bit fresh and exploring something a little bit different with a, with a standalone or two yeah i was going to say because i mean but there's a risk in that isn't it? it's like you kind of get used to the because the characters are set people are invested in a series when you write the next book it's like right i've got all this backstory already logged and we go mm-hmm. with the, the the crime the problem whatever it is and we move forward and this and you can snowball into a book very easily that way whereas I, my view is because i haven't done this yet although i have ideas for a standalone i feel like oh it's kind of starting from scratch all over again and with that there comes some trepidation for me yeah then I, I get that but i think for me the the appeal as well is moving away from a um because the, the ones that i'm looking at at the moment aren't police procedural uh-huh. and, I'm, and i'm looking forward to playing around with that that notion of more everyday people getting involved. Not not that everyday people don't get mixed up in police procedures as well, but you don't have that central police character who is progressing an investigation in a kind of a, a linear fashion or whatever. Mm. Um, you've got people who aren't trained professionals who don't come up against things like this every day, who react differently, who make bad choices, who make you know pressurized choices. And it just I think it, it feels like it's going to give me a lot more room to play with. To yeah. be honest, I kind of I totally get where Will's coming from. That is totally the allure of moving away from police procedural. And, and between books one and two for me, I already needed that freedom. And so wrote yeah. book two in a way that allowed some kind of rogue activity. Because with the first book, there was a constant thought about, well, how would that look in reality? And kind of what are the rules around that? And would that phone call be made in that way? 
Um, and that was fine whilst I did it, but I very quickly realized, oh, actually, it'd be great to just have somebody who's just, like you say, on a human level, reacting and then acting in a, in a specific way because of that. So, yeah, no, I, I totally yeah. see the allure, you know. And I think police procedurals as well, it, it can, I don't know if you feel the same, it, it can feel at times like quite a crowded market. Mm. And I know it's not a case of one reader will only buy one book, but there's an awful lot of really good police procedurals out there. So, yeah. you know, it, it can feel hard to kind of stand out from the crowd which is another part of the appeal of trying to do something a little bit different, coming up with a bit more of a higher concept idea to, to try and differentiate my writing from other people's. Yeah. Well, Rob, I really look forward to that. Congratulations with your latest book. Hope Thank you very much. Superbly well. Um, and we'll speak soon. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Bye for now.